hey, we all live together here. We all love dolma. When our mother <laughs> makes biryani, we all run for it. And uh, then nobody asked, was it made by the Assyrian mother or by the Kurdish mother? <laughs> it's dolma, it's biryani. Yani. <laughs> oh my God, I love it. Shlomo and Shlomo everyone, it's Jesse. Welcome to episode 115 of the Syrian podcast with Lana Haddad. Lana is a Kurdish Iraqi archaeologist who grew up in Germany and recently moved back to Erbil. She studied the ancient history of Mesopotamia and worked on several archaeological projects. She created a strategy board game called Urbilum, the Assyrian Empire, which is based on archaeological background information. Her game got fully sponsored by Spotlight Iraq, which is a support program for cultural creators living in Iraq by the Goethe Institute and German Federal Foreign Office. In this episode, you'll hear about her background in archaeology, the motivation that drove her to create the game, and her thoughts on bringing different communities together and embracing diversity. Lastly, the Assyrian podcast is brought to you by Tony Kalakrakos and the injury lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that has been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Kalakarakos. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at injuryrights.com or 847-982-9516. And now, let's hear from Lana Haddad. Welcome to the Stream Podcast, Lana. I'm so glad that you're here. We tried to do this interview last year in Turabdin when you visit me at the Mor Gabriel Monastery, and I'm so glad that it's happening now. Yeah, how are you? Thank you very much, Jesse. I'm very good, and I'm very, very thankful and grateful for you inviting me to this podcast since I'm not an Assyrian, but I think this is so important to open a dialogue to you. So I'm very, very grateful that you are giving me a chance and a space in a podcast that is made for the Assyrians in the diaspora and also inside the homeland. So thank awesome. you for being your guest. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Lana, you were born in Erbil and then you grew up in Germany, just like me. And now you're back and live in Erbil again. Talk a little bit about your journey. Why did you leave Iraq in the first place? Yeah, like most people, there was like this wave of people uh, going to Europe in the 90s. Most of my family went to Sweden. We went to Germany. And I was six years old at that time. But we went to Germany with always with the promise that we will go back one day. And this one day actually never came. Um, like years passed and we still stayed in Germany. All my siblings somehow established their life. But for myself as a child, I tried to capture all the memories that I have and protect them as much as I can. So somehow my memory became a, a library of pictures, words, etc. I tried really hard to keep my language safe. Um, so this made me also, when I grew up, always feel connected to Erbil and always trying to read more. And I was bombing my aunt, my mom with questions so i wanted to to have the ability when i go back that i'm not lost that i'm still part of the community that i still be connected to it so that's why 
all my time in Germany, I always had this in my background that one day I want to go back. Yeah, a lot of Assyrians think uh, the same way and coming uh, back now to the homeland. Did you study something? Um, and if yes, where exactly in Germany? So I grew up in Bonn, the former capital of uh, Germany. But then in 2009, uh, I finished school and I needed to start uh, doing any something. And, you know, our parents in the diaspora, because they always say we uh, sacrifice so much for you, you need to do something and have the right education. So it was for me like I must go to the university. The thing was for me, okay, I want to study something that can give me a tool or a possibility that I can go back to uh, Iraq and work there. And there are actually like a lot of opportunities to do so. But I was not good in math or physics to be a doctor or engineer, like the dream job of uh, all parents. But I was so much interested in history. And I was in the past years of my school reading a lot about imperial time and how it was uh, using the regional conflicts into their own interest that still now today we have the conflicts uh, emerging out of this time of the imperial time. And this special, special interest brought me into archaeology. So it showed me like how archaeology and the imperial politics were sued together in a very tight way. And um, this made my interest into archaeology more. So there was this one side and the other side was I didn't want to study history, which is just reading books and writing articles. So I wanted to have a practical part of it. And this was archaeology. Did you participate in any excavations during your educational process? Yes, I uh, actually in my first year uh, at the university, I participated on an excavation in uh, northeast Syria um, on two sides. I was there for three months. One was uh, between Kamishli and uh, Amuda, it's called Tel Mozan. And another one was in close to uh, Serkani, Ras Al Ain, uh, Tel Khuera. Both of these sites are not known, not popular, because like in archaeology, most people know Nenoa, Babylon and all this. But in northeast Syria, you have a lot of sites or in general in all Syria. So my first experiences in archaeological field was in Syria. And later on, I started to work also in northern Iraq and Egypt and in Jordan. But I traveled also a lot to discover more archaeological sites all around, like in Iran and so on. So archaeology was really a big, big part of my life. Like every summer or spring, I was on excavations and since 2010. So there are a lot of fields within archaeology. Are you specialized in, in a specific field? To be honest, I could never decide which period is my most interesting because like you need to imagine when you study Near Eastern um, archaeology, you have a time period that starts like 6000 BC till 600 BC or sometimes depending on which university you are, it goes to uh, the emerge of early Christianity where like this is like the antiquity of archaeology and then you have uh, medieval time and so on. So for me, it was really difficult to decide because each period has its own specialty where I really love to work in. And because I loved uh, working on excavations, so I tried always to 
work in different projects, which I did. And each project has a specific period. And sometimes you have multiple periods on one side. So for me, my personal specialization was actually like really excavating. And then, of course, I did my MAs on terracotta figurines and I started my PhD on funeral practices. And both of them were like the third millennium BC, like 5,000 years ago. So I'm, but I'm not like this specialist on pottery or on um, war tools or something like this. So I had like a more broader general view. And I learned also the ancient languages, Sumerian, Akkadian, uh, Hurrian. Was there anything else? No, no, all, all the oh, three. Wow. <laughs> it's enough. <laughs> so you can, you can read cuneiform too? No, I wish. Oh, this was like really the hardest thing to learn uh, the cuneiforms. It's really, really difficult because first of all, you need to remember that the writing in cuneiforms was emerged in over uh, 3000 years it was in use. And you know, your own handwriting is different than my handwriting. So this is yes. already difficult to use. And then depending on the language, the signs and the period of time, uh, the signs elaborate too. So it's really, really painful to learn reading cuneiform. It's not easy. It's not like you're learning an alphabet and that's it. It's way more complex. So I never emerged to be good in reading cuneiforms. I always failed. Um, so I was learning the languages with the transliteration. So they translated the cuneiform in Latin alphabets. And then I was learning on them to read and uh, translate uh, ancient texts which was a ton of fun. They have like amazing texts. I can really, really recommend everybody once in their life, like to have one year focusing on ancient languages and learn Akkadian or Sumerian and read these amazing letters and poems and so on. It's really amazing. You will be amazed like what people wrote 3000 years ago or 4000 years ago. That's really interesting uh, to hear. I'm currently trying to learn my own mother tongue, and, <laughs> but maybe after that, <laughs> uh, maybe ancient languages will be, we'll see about that. Um, are you practicing your profession currently in Erbil? Um, so I came back to Erbil two years ago with the job of training for four months in the archaeological uh, training program. And currently, I'm working with uh, Professor Zeynep Bahrani. She's an Iraqi-American archaeologist uh, in Columbia University. And she has a restoration project in Ahmadiyya, where it's about um, restorating the old uh, Mosul Gate, or nowadays called the Hinan Gate, um, which it already fell down like 30 years ago and was restorated but it was not restorated in a proper way and some stones are missing so this is our mission but because of COVID-19 it's on pause right now. You were also telling me about some freelance work that you did um, regarding the Erbil Bazaar at the Citadel can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah that was actually like my first project that I uh, did in the Kurdistan area of Iraq. Um, so I worked in Erbil 2012 in uh, the old bazaar, the Kaisariya. Because nowadays when you go, there is a new facade around the Kaisariya, but inside there are two old buildings um, who are like over 100, 120 years old. And 
in this period, it was like about measuring the building to have an actual plan how the status quo of the building is and also making research. So we went to the grandson of the founder of the Caesaria. Um, there are like famous established Albiro family, Turkmen. Uh, it's called the Chalabi family. They are very, very famous also for the whole Iraq history because they had like high political position in Baghdad, in Erbil, in Mosul. Mm-hmm. And it was for me very, very interesting because I was born in Erbil, but I didn't know at that time so much about the um, recent history of Erbil. And I learned that somehow at that time, Erbil, as a small town, these famous families who were like during the Ottoman period already rich, but how did they make this money? Because at that time we didn't have the oil. So he was telling me that his grandfather was selling wool from sheep over Mosul to Aleppo. And with this money, he made a fortune uh, where he could build this Kaisaria, this bazaar. And it was this Kaisaria was uh, specifically for tailors. And all the tailors working there were Jewish. And Jewish? Yes. So we have behind the Kaisaria a whole quarter called Juleka, which means the Jewish quarter. And next to it, you have the Arab quarter. And then you have Ta'ajil and Khanfa which were Kurdish and Turkmen-dominated quarters. Um, So for me, this was like, ah, now I understand why the Jewish quarter is the closest to the bazaar, because they were working as tailors, etc. So I made a lot of interviews with people who used to still know the Jewish tailors working there. So I got a complete different image of Erbil that does not exist anymore. And it's going to be lost completely after one, two generations when you have no witnesses anymore about this time. So for me, this was like incredible. I can really feel like you have a lot of respect for ancient and older places, sites, artifacts. What we can see in this region is that there's a huge lack of protection for these sites. For example, the Khinis site or the Zawa mountain in Duhuk where they put some Kurdish flag graffiti on, on the artifacts. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, so vandalism on um, ancient sites is unfortunately very popular here. So you mentioned already Finnis and Zawa mountains, but also the Bahdimian Gate in Amedi or the rock-cut grave of Khaspapan close to Sleimania. They all damaged with graffitis. And it's a horrible thing. Like everywhere you see, oh, I was here, or Ahmed loves Sarah, or whatever. Like stupid small graffitis that you can um, see on all ancient sites. It's not like special just on Finnis or on uh, Zawa Mountain. The problem here is, is just the lack of appreciation from the, the majority. Because making graffitis on ancient wall is actually an old practice because we have also when you go to Pompeii you have graffitis on the walls but the thing is in modern times when people see there is an ancient wall or a statue or whatever they like to engrave their name into it because I feel like they believe okay this stone will be old uh, will uh, stay alive 
longer than me. So when I put my name, I will my name will also stay long time in appearance. Mm -hmm. So I was in Persepolis in Iran, and you have there the gates of all nations where there are two Lamassus from the Achaemenid period. And those sites of these two uh, huge Lamassus are filled with graffiti, with crushed ones. You see Hebrew scripts, you see English scripts, like from the British Tea Company. Sir John, I don't know what was his name, uh, wow. wrote his name. So this idea, when you see something old, so people feel the value of it, that it stays for a longer time. So then they come and want to be part of this immortality, I think. So this is only my personal view. But the thing is just like to say, this happens everywhere. And it's part of human desire, I think, to try to put their name somewhere where they know it will stay for a long time. So even just like a few days ago in Kaskatan, um, like for years, there's uh, people advocating about it, that the graffiti needs to be taken down. And now they did it. But it's a problem because even in Zawa Mountains, they did it three times, I think, mm -hmm. because again and again, graffiti comes. The problem is you can do it once, twice, but you can't do it all the time because you need to use heavy chemicals to, re uh, to take down the color. And this yes. will damage the, the stone on the, on the back. So this is like a real big, big problem. And it's very difficult to control this. So I hope when people talk more about it and have a bigger dialogue, maybe then people will say like, oh, I should respect this more and not just write my name with a huge uh, spray or something. That's really interesting. Yeah, I, th I saw pictures where they showed the, the effect on the chemicals on the stone and it, it got even a different color, the stone after it. So there needs to be more respect, I think. And we even have to start in schools with the education and so that people feel appreciation about this, some respect, even know what this is about. I think there is also lack of education, like what is this, how important is this, and so on. But uh, do you think the authorities could do a better job? And if yes, what could they do to help? I, you, you visited uh, Erbil, and I think you saw also how all the conflicts also impacting on um, the political side and, and the administrative side, etc. Yes. So before Daesh, there was more money and there was also more the energy of doing things but everything stopped at that time and uh, since then the economical situation did not really come back to uh, its height and it's just going worse to be honest COVID-19 and all this so you have the one on the one side the financial problem then on the second side you have the problem of skilled people working in the uh, in the directorate Like the leadership of all directorates, if it's Duhok, Erbi, Osleimania, or the smaller parts, they are all, because I met most of them, they are yeah. all really engaged. They really want to protect the sites. And, um, but they always say, I don't have the capacity because we have so many sites. And when I, every time when I visit the antiquity directorate, there is always every, nearly every day somehow, that they need to go to the field because somebody is building something and then they find artifacts or 
there is a site that the Antiquity Directorate knows, knows already that there is archaeological remains. So they send their people who work there to make a report, etc. So they have, they, their capacity is really little and the work amount that they need to do is a lot. So because they, they, not everybody who works in the Antiquity Directorate has the permission to do this, to go and write the reports. And especially sites who are really outside of the cities, like Finnis. Finnis, the good thing is there is a gate and there are guards, but they cannot be in every corner. And they put already cameras and they cannot always follow up the people who do destruction. But yeah. it became less than like 10 years ago. So there was already an effort in the past years and it's working better. And Zawa Mountain, for example, it's very badly accessible. So you cannot control it. You cannot have a guard all the time next to the reliefs. Many, this yeah. would be not possible in any country because also the space is not providing it because it's really a short cliff and then you have the reliefs on the one side. So it's very, very, very difficult to control this and to protect it. So for me, I think the best thing is really like the educational part. And if they will get more money, I think it would be like my suggestion would be to have a kind of a station on the mount on the top when people come to visit, and then you have a guide who uh, accompanies you, explains you the site, but also taking care that nobody is just uh, making an, uh, any destruction. So something yeah. like this would be good. It would be good because this guard can get also extra money because you can pay him one, two, three thousand for the for the tour, etc. And at the same time. You can protect the relief, but also the environment because there is a lot of rubbish around. So this would be a suggestion when there will be more money in um, the economical side. I actually agree that would be really helpful. I once climbed down with some friends. It was really dangerous, to be honest, especially when it's raining. So I think a guide would even provide some sense of security. He knows which way to go and stuff like that, instead of people just trying uh, randomly to climb down, not knowing the road and all of that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I agree with you because also like many times when I try as much as often I can to go to Zawa Mountain because I just love it there. Uh, every time I lose the track, like every time I, I'm, I'm always reaching the relief, but I take always a different road because <laughs> uh, I can't remember it. Everything changes like after seasons. So having a guide who always takes the same path is actually more sustainable for the nature around it and also to have protection of the environment that not all the time you, you find uh, plastic bottles and something like this. So this would be actually really the easiest way and I think also the most beneficial way to protect such a site. And also when you have a guide taking you to this place and he explains to you what it is, you will automatically have more respect to it than if you go by yourself and you just see a depiction of humans on animals. Yes, so this, I agree. Is, this is a big difference. If you have somebody explaining you, then if you just go by yourself and look at the image. I remember last year I went to an event that was uh, organized by the Directorate of Syriac Culture and Arts and they invited the professor from Sulemania, I think, and they were talking about the Ashur site and how they wanted to create a touristic place at the site so more people are visiting. 
And I remember when you went to the stage and said, okay, listen, guys, this is not realistic. <laughs> and I was very amazed, first of all, because you were like, this room was filled with men. <laughs> and second, you, you, you spoke very confident about your, your perspective on that. Can you tell me a little bit why you were so frustrated and yeah, what were your thoughts? So yeah, I remember very much that day and I took a long time to decide if I should go in upfront and uh, give my opinion or not. The project idea was the site of Ashur to make, uh, to build a new museum. And uh, there was like the plan of building uh, a large building that is interactive, presenting the history, the archaeology, and making a park with benches for the visitors and planting 800 uh, palms and so on. So it sounded really beautiful. Yeah. Like just listening to what they want to build and create, it's fantastic. But we need to face the reality because this area was recently uh, under Daesh. And also before Daesh, it was not a place that people go just visit. This was possible in the 80s, but not since the 90s. Uh, this touristic for domestic tourists is already cut. So with Daesh, it got worse. So you don't have the infrastructure. And if you tell anybody to go to visit there, they will tell you, are you crazy? Should I go to Tikrit and this area? Like they will kill me. So people have a, a special image about this area. People are afraid to go there. So if you invest right now so much money in building such a construction and plant and all this, you will do it for nothing because you will have no visitors. There must be more work done before to come to this point. Like you need first to get back the trust of people and also have peace. You need to build peace first. You cannot, when Daj was there one, uh, one year ago, Uh, say, okay, everything is over and now we build a museum and pretend like nothing happened before. This is yeah. not how you deal with conflict. And I was giving them the example like, we all here are now in Erbil and we have the Citadel, which since 2007, they are working on it and they are facing so many challenges financially, but also it's... Um, It's a race against time because the material there is mud and bricks. And every season when it's rain, they have a problem that many roofs collapse in the houses of the citadel. So they, they rebuild one house and the next year another house collapses. It's really, really difficult to re-inhabit the citadel. So it's yeah. a huge, huge problem that they are facing. Like till now, we have 2020, We cannot, as visitors, see the whole citadel. So you see, like, there is already a project that needs more support, that needs more creative ideas, how to solve it in a faster time. And this is a place where people from all Iraq and from outside come and visit. But Ashur will be a spot that people will not go. So you would invest millions of dollars, uh, or maybe hundreds thousands of dollars, for something that will be in ruins again after five years because nobody will visit it. Yeah. And we need also to remember that uh, the site of Ashur, it's a ruin. Like you cannot go there and see a palace. You cannot go there and see a temple. 
the, the only attraction would be the museum. But around yeah. it, there, there will be just a huge mound of a tell, uh, but nothing else. So this is not an attraction for people to come and uh, go there. There must be a complete different concept for a different time. Because for right now, I think it's a misinvest. Although I would love to go and visit Ashtoreum, it would be one of my dreams. Yeah, thank you so much for your perspective on that topic. Let's talk about the topic that is actually the main reason why you're here. Last year, you created a board game called Urbillum, the Assyrian Empire. And it got selected and fully funded by Spotlight Iraq, which is a project of the Goethe Institute and supported by the German government. How did that happen? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> so I love to play games. I always, like since I can remember of thinking, I used to play games, especially card games. And this was always like what we used to do in the family. Every time, especially on weekends, when the family gathers, we play. We came visit LPA to see our family, we play games. So also me living in the diaspora, I played games. And especially in the later years, I started to uh, explore more strategy board games and I enjoyed it a lot. And um, I saw there are many board games who have historical themes, but like in TV shows, etc., Mesopotamia is always underrepresented. And there was a game called Tigris and Euphrates, I think. I played it with my friend and I was disappointed because I didn't see the real connection to Mesopotamia since I'm an archaeologist and have like an inside view. So I was like, how is this possible? Mesopotamia has one of the richest and most uh, best documented period of human history uh, in an archaeological perspective. And it's not well represented. So I was like, why is not somebody doing a game that is more realistic to what really exists in the Mesopotamian history? And then me and my friend were joking, okay, let's do a game ourselves. So we started to work on it. And 2015, we had a whole concept. And I went to an uh, international uh, conference, which was called the future of Middle Eastern uh, or Near Eastern um, archaeology. And I presented there that like, if we want to preserve, because it was also after Daesh and what they were doing in the Nainawa Plain, et cetera, yeah. with all the destruction. So I was saying that if we want to protect our heritage, we need to make a bridge. We need to connect the people who live there again with the heritage. Why? Because the last 40 years in Iraq, we had one conflict after the other. With each decade, the situation of our heritage got worse and worse and worse. And with this 40 years, because I remember my parents, or the parents of many of my friends, when they were young, when they were students, they were doing trips to Patra, Tizifon, to Ur, to Babel, and they saw all these sites as domestic tourists. They go and visited all these sites and it was popular to do this. And they had knowledge about it from their education, like from school, and also um, going visiting these sites. 
all this was eroded in the past 40 years because of the conflict. So it didn't start that our heritage is endangered with Daesh, but already before with the conflict. Because when you are in war, you don't care about the heritage. You care about mm -hmm. your life and your family's life, which is completely understandable. So if we want to save really heritage, we need to make people connected again to it. And in, in, in my opinion, independent of uh, their background, if they are Syrians, if they are Kurdish, if they are Turkmen, if they are Arab, Median, I want to everybody feel responsible to it because we were always a diverse culture. And um, I don't believe that it will change. Change it in the amount like who is the majority, who is the minority, but it was always diverse. So your whole motivation with that game was first to create a game actually on archaeological facts and also to strengthen the community, the coexistence and the respect for different cultures. Yes, exactly. I wanted to have a nice product that is entertaining and it's not a boring book that you need to read to learn something. Um, I wanted to have something that is easy, soft and entertaining that makes that, that can open a door for people to get interested into the heritage and start to read more. So this was like my goal specifically with the game. Got it. And Urbilum, the Assyrian Empire, uh, what is the meaning of the word Urbilum? So Urbilum is for me now the brand name because my idea is to produce different series of games that has to do with the different periods of uh, the Mesopotamian heritage. So Urbilum I choose first because I'm from Erbil. Not I'm from Erbil, I was born in Erbil. My family is not from Erbil, but I, I'm, I say like I choose to be an Erbilian since I was born here and I, I, I feel identified with this uh, beautiful and diverse city. Mm -hmm. So Urbilum is one of the most ancient names of this city. It comes from 2100 BC from a text in South Mesopotamia in uh, Ur, where a king goes to fight uh, the city-states in the north. And Urbilum is one of the states that he is fighting. So that's why we know how the ancient name of Erbil was at that time. We don't have a text from Erbil itself saying, my name is this and this, um, but we have texts from outside, from other ancient cities that mention this place and say their name. So Urbilum for me is a general brand name that I want to keep and as using it as an advocate to show like, okay, it's about ancient times, games that are produced in Erbil and I started with the ancient name of it. The Assyrian Empire is the first game and I did a decision that I didn't want to make one game that generalized the archaeology and history of Mesopotamia. I wanted to make one game that focuses on one period, which is for me, uh, for the first game, the Neo-Assyrian period. So this means mm -hmm. like the first millennia BC. So not the middle uh, Assyrian time, not the old Assyrian time, it's the Neo-Assyrian time. The thing is that in this board game, um, you have a booklet where you have uh, two pages of how to play the game. And then the rest of the pages tells you the background information, history and archaeology of the core of the Assyrian Empire. Because
because I didn't want to write an encyclopedia. I, as I said, I just want to open a small window for people to get into the heritage and get interested into it. So I tried to make it short but interesting and gather informations that I believe that our people here, it's important for them to know. Beautiful. So, you said it's it was funded by Spotlight Iraq. What is Spotlight Iraq? Talk to me a little bit about the process because I don't think it's very easy to create a game. Not talking about the strategic type of work or like thinking how it works, but to get it designed, to get it printed. How do you, how did you? <laughs> I was somehow very fortunate because I just finished my project in Devoe, where I was working for a month as a trainer. And just there were three days left or four days left for application to Spotlight Iraq. Spotlight Iraq is um, a project from the Goethe Institute that funds any culture project uh, from young people who have any topic, if it's music, theater, cinema, uh, anything that you can think of uh, in a, that has a connection to artistics uh, that can benefit the society. So that's their goal, to support young people who do culture work that gives a beneficial output for the society here, for peace building, for introducing communities to each other, um, supporting diversity, empowering women. So I saw that last year there were a lot of uh, short movies, etc., cetera, sp uh, sponsored. And um, also when in the application, they have like themes of theater, of cinema, and so on and so on. And then there is the other, and I clicked on the others and uh, applied with the idea of the game. So I was giving the focus on my motivation and not uh, the actual game itself when I applied, because I thought, okay, it would be too much to say the complete concept of the game. It is more the motivation, what I want to do with this game or what I want to reach with this game. And that was really lucky for me that it was somehow a very creative and new way to do so because they supported me and said that they are really looking forward to see what comes out because that's the first time that they hear about such an idea. So this was like, I think the advantage that I had that I came with an idea that for this region is completely new. Like board yeah. games exist on tons in Europe and in America. It wasn't like the first board game made in Mesopotamia? The first real board game is an ancient one from uh, Ur, from South Mesopotamia, that you can find in Baghdad and in London, British Museum. It's the, the royal game of Ur. It's a fun game, it's like backgammon. The interesting part is like, for modern strategy board game, it was the first one that goes public. Let's talk a little bit about the menu. You mentioned before that it's not just providing a manual how to play this game, but also giving Assyrian like historical facts. I'm going to open this right now. So you're talking here about the uncovering of the past of Mesopotamia. Who are the Assyrians? What language did they speak? The emergence of the Assyrian Empire. And then you're talking about Ashur, Nimrud, Khorzabad, Ninwe, Arbeil, Sanharib, and Ashurbanipal. And most importantly, you translated 
the booklet, even in, in Surat, which is the Eastern dialect of the Assyrian language, why was that important to you? Um, I think for me it was very, very important to include as many languages as I can, and especially uh, Surat, um, because I did it in Arabic, Kurdish, Surat, and English. So I wrote in English and I let people who are better in these languages, Surat, unfortunately I can't speak at all, but I understand a few words to, to translate it properly. And I think, especially I think my experience growing up in Germany, being part of a minority and understanding the value of your own mother tongue culture and um, the emerge and then the need of protecting it and to improve your own skills in it made me like to, if I want to do this, I want to include as many people as I can, as many communities as I can. So I think because it's not long time ago that now here Assyrian children can go to school and learn their language. And so since there is a new generation who start to learn, read and write in their mother tongue, I wanted to say, to think, okay, then I can provide another material for them that they can read and access. So they can go and read it in Arabic or in English, but why not in their own mother tongue? I think this is something beautiful that I can share with the, with the community. And if it would be opposite round, I would be really happy and grateful that somebody is doing an effort and providing me the information in my mother tongue. And actually, this is also what I want to point out. We have a lot of foreign missions working in Iraq and uh, the archaeological field. And not long time ago, all their reports were in English. And you know yourself, the administrative part here, rarely somebody speaks English. So this means that they come and excavate for one month or more. And when they finish, they write a report in English. And sometimes a very, very short summary in Arabic. And then they leave again. That means that the directorate stands there without having detailed information what exactly happened in, during the excavation. They have always uh, a representative there who follows up, but it's not easy for them also to follow up completely. So there is always lack of information. And now recently they start like because the, um, the people working in the directorate, they learned English, they improve so that they can also write in Kurdish or an Arabic uh, report besides the English one. Um, so I was missing this, that every time when I was working in the field, that the local people did not have access to the knowledge that uh, the foreign missions uh, produced after excavations. And for this, I think it's important when we want to share knowledge, share information, to be inclusive and not exclusive. So for me, this was like, okay, I don't want to do it because I'm Kurdish, only in English and Kurdish. I want to do it in Arabic too, and I want to do it in Surat too, a language that is endangered because the community is shrinking so much, especially after Daesh, etc., in our community. So this is like my contribution, my part in trying to include others. Very beautiful said. Yeah, I definitely have a different connection to the game because there's because my language is also represented here. And thank you so much for doing this. I think I can speak for a lot of Assyrians. Uh, we appreciate your efforts in this.
Let's talk a little bit about the game itself. So it's in front of me right now, and I want to just explain a little bit the visuals to the listeners because they can't see the game. I have a lot of cards in front of me, and we have the Tree of Life on the back, and on the front, you have different images that remind you of the Assyrian uh, clay tablets. We have Ashurbanipal riding on his Yanni bicycle, killing some lions. <laughs> <laughs> we have um, some Assyrian priests. We have some Zurna playing Assyrians and uh, Assyrian women with their kids. And we have the emblem of Ashur, which is also uh, on the top of the Assyrian flag. We have the Nargil Gate and many, many other images from these tablets. So I'm a designer. That's why I really appreciate the this great design. You mentioned in the booklet that the artist that created the design is... Rebel Kid. Rebel Kid. Okay. Is he a Kurd or is he a Syrian or... Uh, he's a Kurd from uh, Rania. He's an amazing artist. I discovered him on uh, Instagram. He's very, very creative. Like he... He does not have one way in do his art, like in different things. So I approached him and asked him if he wants to contribute in this project. And because I had the concept, um, how it should look like and what figures should be in the game. Because for me, it was important that all art that is used in the game should have a representative in real life from the Assyrian reliefs. So because you know, Uh, the museums in the world are filled with objects from the ancient Assyrian palaces, but rarely our people can go and visit. Especially people living in Iraq, they don't get visas easily to go to London or Paris or Berlin. And also even to Baghdad. And if you are from Erbil, you don't go to Baghdad if you don't have any um, real reasons to go there. You don't go there just to visit the museum. Um, so people have little access to the images that exist. So that's why for me it was important when I designed the board game, it should be not fantasy-based. Like the fantasy is like the freestyle, but mm -hmm. um, the content should be real. So people have already a small idea of how it looks like. So when they go one day, inshallah, to a museum, maybe they will recognize it. They will see, oh, I saw this in the board game. Oh, I saw this is in the card. And now I see it uh, in the museum. So right. this was my idea. Got it. Got it. Can you explain how the game works? And most importantly, how I win it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Syrian. I'm all about conquering and, and you know. <laughs> um. Yeah, if you're a royal Assyrian, then you have it in your blood to win the game. Of course, I'm um, a princess. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So it's a two-player game, and um, you have in the middle the river Tigris, which is important for the core of the Assyrian Empire. And because, as I said, I'm focusing on the core, you have five settlements. It starts with Ashur, Kalfu, Dusharukin, Nainawa, and Arba'id. The first four settlements were, once upon a time, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and starting with Ashur. And then after some generations, they change it to Kalfu. After some generations, they change it to Dusharukin. Dusharukin was only for one year uh, capital. But if you want to know more why, you should buy the game and read it. <laughs> 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 uh, 
Um, no, jokes beside. Um, and I added Arbail. It was never a capital or a royal city, but it was home of the goddess Ishtar. Her main temple, um, the Ishtar temple of Arbail, was there. And she was very famous because there are varieties of uh, the goddess Ishtar. And the one from Arbail was most popular. And she was also popular in uh, Egypt. Not in the way that they had temples of her, but they knew her and appreciated her power. So that's why I put it into the board. And also like every time when an Assyrian king wanted to, because every year they had rebellions and the king went to these outskirts to fight against the rebellions. But before doing this, he always went to Arba'il to go to the temple of Ishtar and asking for her advice what to do. And after the blessing, then he went to war. So that's why, just to have the idea why I choose these four or five cities. The idea of the game is, you as a king, you travel between these settlements. Every time you travel, you need sacrifice one of your population cards that you have in your hands. And when you settle, uh, when, you, when you travel with your king from one place to another, then you could put down population cards on the settlement. So you are bringing people to this city. And then you can start, depending on how many you have, to build your city. You start with stage one as a small village. You continue, you get bigger, you start to build a fortification wall, you start trading, you build a big temple. And as a peak of your settlement, which will be stage six, you build a palace. Then you have a royal city. The idea behind it is, if you want to build an empire, it doesn't happen from one day to another. It doesn't happen just when you got to one region and then uh, your mega city is there. It happens gradually. It happens with development. It happens with the power of people. If you mm -hmm. don't have enough people, you cannot build. So this is the idea that you always need to settle enough people on one side and then you start constructing and you start small and then you go big. And when do you win the game? When uh, you need to calculate the numbers of settlements that you have, like always the topmost uh, stage. When you have 16 and your opponent has uh, less than 10, you win the game because then you are the king who has the biggest empire. But it's not that easy that you just travel and settle people and build because the people that you settle, they have specific powers, depending on their character. Then you can use strategies to fight the other player. In this way, you can destroy his city or take his people to your side, or you can steal a construction stage from him, etc. So you have like different strategies that you can use so that the game is um, entertaining. Because I had like many times where I played like you get frustrated because you've worked so hard in building your empire and then the other player comes and destroys two of your cities and you start from zero again. But this is like the joy in it. I'm a very competitive person in games, so I, I enjoy having this uh, eager and this feeling while I play. When do you know when it's time to count the settlements? Are there like just um, a number of spots that you can fill and then you know the game is over? You need always to keep track. So sometimes it happens that we talk so much in the game uh, while playing that we forgot to look at it. And I already won the game, but continued. 
So you need always to keep track on the, the stage numbers that are in front of you. So if you forget, the other can take advantage and build up and win against you if you don't pay too much attention. How long do you think is one game? Um, so I tested the game with many friends uh, from different levels. In general, I would say it takes 45 minutes to play, 45 to one hour. So I saw uh, on your Instagram page that you deliver now in Erbil, deliver the game to, to the customer's home. Let's be honest, like you're Kurdish, you created an Assyrian game. When I order the game, I actually expect an Assyrian person coming to my door and deliver this. So tell me a little bit about the reactions from Assyrians and also the reactions from non-Assyrians would be interesting. So I, I started the delivery by myself. Like I really deliver it by myself. I think next month it will be changed. But it was like really the most fun experience in my life. As a teenager, I always wanted to deliver pizza when I was living in Germany to have a <laughs> side income, but I never had the driving license. So I was laughing when I came up with the idea that I will deliver it myself. So I was like, oh, I finally can uh, make my teenage dream true. <laughs> so it's been now like nearly over a month where I do the delivery once a week. And of course, many people from Ankawa ordered the game. And since also my name is Lana Haddad, and Haddad, my last name, is very, very international in a way. Um, exactly. I have relatives with the name Haddad. So the first time I read your name, I actually thought you were a Syrian. Yeah, yeah. This is also like what most people think. So most people think I'm uh, a Syrian. And the moment when they find out that I'm Kurdish, they are very surprised. But I always see a smile on their face. And this means a lot to me. And, and then they ask me, like, how come I do this? And I explain my motivation and all this. And they get more excited and happy. And they're all very friendly and grateful and uh, thank me for doing this. And this always makes my day really like to see how they feel that somebody, an outsider, comes, appreciates uh, also their language in like writing the booklet in their language. This makes them very, very happy. And seeing people happy, buying something from me, that means a lot to me. It's, so I feel like I'm not just making a product to make money, which I don't. <laughs> um, but it's just like I'm, I'm really achieving what I am dreaming of with this, that I bring people together and I make them happy and I can give them something where they can feel connected to their heritage. So when I come to customers who are Kurdish, they are all very supportive too, especially because I'm a woman and they also, because, because here at this time, it comes like it's a game uh, in, in, in general in the world, game production is very male dominant and then seeing a woman and then a Kurdish woman. So people feel like proud. Oh, she's one of us and she's doing this and she's achieving this. So I get a lot of support. At the same time, Many people come and ask me, why you don't do it about Kurdish? And I'm like, yeah, but this is not my motivation in it to make out of my product a nationalistic thing. For me, it's about diversity, about heritage or culture. And I started with something where I believe 
it was neglected in the past time a lot and got really horrible attention throughout the actions of dive so that's why i think for me it was important to break this chain and giving a positive light on on this topic of the neo-assyrian period and not always thinking of daesh destroying the lamasu or something so when i explain the people my motivation behind it they always take oh this is actually good this is really nice and uh, i'm so happy that you are doing this and then they still they ask because they have also like the need and the want that somehow their culture is represented in something like this so they will ask me, can you do this also about uh, a Kurdish topic? And I say, yes, of course, I'm planning to do a series and I'm trying to include uh, all the communities because this is like what I want to do. It's not like I'm taking sides, I'm just doing this and I'm not working for my own community or whatever. No, I want to include everybody as much as possible. And so the reactions in general are positive. I got once a negative comment like somebody accused me that I'm taking the, the Assyrian heritage for the Kurdish culture. Like as I am pretending that the Assyrian heritage is also part of the Kurdish identity. And this is not my approach. My approach is to make people listen and understand each other and respecting the different historical, archaeological facts because we live in a very diverse area throughout history. The issue is also during the Neo-Assyrian period, not everybody was Assyrian. You have like the elite, the royal, but you know from all documents that people from all around the known world at that time came to the capital because of economical perspective to have worked there. Uh, there were people from the Levant, from the Zagros Mountains, etc., etc because we have also lists from the empire where we see names from a language that we don't know, which is not Assyrian, Akkadian or whatever, but a language that does not have writing, but exists. So that means it was a really diverse community at that time. So for this reason, why can't I say, okay, I was born in Erbil, uh, this city has a long, long, long history the Romans were here. It doesn't mean that suddenly everybody in this area was Roman. The mm -hmm. Greek were here. It doesn't mean that everybody in this area became Greek just because the Greek were ruling. The Persians uh, were ruling over here. The same. And also when the Assyrians were ruling, it doesn't mean that every citizen in their empire was Assyrian. Like in, in the ethnical background. In the law yeah. thing, it's always different because uh, many people worked uh, in the administrative field without ethnically being Assyrian. So, uh, and this goes back and back and back. It's always like this. Also today, in Erbil, the government majority is Kurdish, but you have Syrians, you have Turkmens, etc. You have Arabs. So why don't remember people this, that our reality today, how the diversity is, and this is actually something that we all need to be proud of to be happy out of, especially when we look at the global thing where racism is uh, growing and it's bearable to watch this. And for me, this is why like, I try to remember people, hey, we all live together here. We all love Dolma. When our mother <laughs> makes biryani, we all run for it. 
And uh, then nobody asked, was it made by the Assyrian mother or by the Kurdish mother? <laughs> it's dalma, it's biryani. Yani. <laughs> oh my God, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and if we share so much, we have more in common than what divides us. So I don't want to focus on things that divide us. I want to focus on things that uh, bring us together. Yeah, I once ordered Kurdish chai. And I didn't know what the difference is between my Turkish chai, my Syriac chai, my Kurdish chai. Chai is chai, bro. <laughs> you have only the, uh, the difference with Iranian chai. Iranian chai is lighter, it's not that heavy and less sugar. While the, what you calculated is always very dark, bitter and needs a lot of sugar. That's the only difference you can find. <laughs> okay, noted. But jokes aside, I think this is such a really, really beautiful approach. Uh, I think this is so, so important. Definitely. What are the next steps for the game? Because I bought my game at the Spotlight Iraq event with this beautiful bag that comes with it. How can people from all over the world get this game? And what do you think? How much would they pay for it? So for now, the idea is because I printed 500 games, And when they get sold out, I want to use the money that comes back in producing more games. So this game right now, I want to make a series out of it. And I have beside this game, other games in my mind that I would like to develop, but I need the money for it. So I need to wait like a few months so that I have enough sales uh, to use this money back in producing more games. So the idea and the mission for me is right now to really establish this as kind of a Iraqi board game uh, company where each year there will be one or two new different games coming up. Because in my mind, I have already 10 games. They need just to have money to be realized. I had already orders from the US uh, and from Europe where people brought it and paid me via PayPal and I gave it uh, to relatives of them and they send it to them when they go visit them or something like this. Yeah. So I already love that there is somehow the interest and also the support from uh, the outside. So if anyone is interested and they have family relatives uh, who can uh, send them the game, I'm most welcome. they are most welcome to approach me on the social media. But in the future, if my plan works out, I would have like a distribution from Iraq and a distribution from Europe where I can send them um, also to other countries. But this all can work out when people buy out my game in this year. Inshallah. Inshallah. And <laughs> <laughs> so we have a lot of Assyrians that usually come around uh, the Assyrian New Year, first of April. Do you have still a bunch of games that you could sell? So maybe if Corona, the pandemic is over by April, we'll see about that. And people are coming. They could approach you on Instagram, pre-order. And then when they come visit, they could get it in Erbil. Definitely, definitely. I would be happy to uh, save games for people who know they will come later. Um, for sure. I'm always welcome. Beautiful. So we are closing the interview with our famous question. As you know, we have Assyrians from all over the world listening to this interview. Do you have anything specific to tell them? I would love to invite them back to the homeland. They should come and eat dolma 
and they should come and see their people and connect with us with all the diverse community that here we are i think we all need to be more together than in in the diaspora um i used to live in the diaspora so come to the homeland come see your family come see your 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 earth your ground that belongs to you and share with me the dormo when you are here <laughs> wow well i'm going to be the first person coming and sharing that dolma with you <laughs> lana i really appreciate you i really appreciate the positive perspective that you give that your sense of community and your love for coexistence i think this is really important today and i just appreciate how much you respect my culture i i think you're a great role model and thank you so much for this interview Thank you very much Jessie and thank you very much for inviting me to this space and I am really looking forward and anyone who has more questions they can approach me on the social medias and I would be happy to respond to each of them. Thank you very much again and all the best for the podcast. I think it's an amazing idea. Well done. Thank you for listening. Please make sure you subscribe to us, rate and review us wherever you listen to the podcast. Also, if you know someone who should be on the podcast, please reach out to us. You can find more information about nominating future guests on our website. Okay, bye.